Hey, thanks for joining us today here at Genesis. My name is Jerry and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, over the last few years, I've personally gotten, gotten into the sport of mountain biking. And I like it for a few simple reasons. I like to be outdoors. I like to be in the woods. I like to be on a trail, but I hate running. And so running isn't going to do it for me. So I've decided that if I can be on a bike in the woods, it's, it's one of the best things in the world. Plus it helps me stay in shape and I'm getting older and I need all the help there I can get. I also have a bunch of buddies here at Genesis that like to mountain bike. So that makes it worth it. But there's another reason that I really like mountain biking. And, and please don't tell my wife I said this, but honestly, it's kind of dangerous. And I like that. And so I learned that lesson the hard way several years ago when I first started riding. I was in my mid-20s, and I was so excited about it that I invited my brother-in-law, Kirk, to join me on his maiden voyage into the woods. And so we're riding our bikes to the trail, and Kirk, who loves adventure, says to me, hey, don't you think we should wear a helmet? Now, I was in my mid-20s. I thought I was invincible, and I remember looking him square in the eyes, and I said, helmets? Are you kidding me? Helmets are for dorks. No lie. Less than 60 seconds later, we weren't even on the trail in the woods yet. I went over my handlebars, hit my head on the ground, and we both turned around and rode back home and went and bought helmets. And on that day, I learned a very valuable life lesson. If you're gonna mountain bike, you have to wear a helmet. It's, you have to. I refuse to wear, ride any, with anybody that doesn't wear a helmet. It's just too dangerous, right? Now, when you think about it, there's rules like that in life, rules that are intuitive. We know that they're true. For instance, like if you're gonna you go mountain biking, you need to wear a helmet. But here's another one, you know this. When you ride in a car, you should always wear your seatbelt, right? If you don't, it's dangerous, it's not wise, and you can get a ticket, and that's no fun. Uh, kids, and maybe some of you adults, if you play outside later, this, later today and you get sticky and nasty, what should you do before you go to bed? You should take a bath, right? That's just one of those things that you need to do. So we had this conversation in our home recently about life rules and what are some basic life rules. And my 13-year-old son, Ben, didn't miss a beat. He said, I've got one for you, dad. If you ever plan to leave the house, you should definitely make sure that you're wearing clothes. I laughed out loud because he's right. Like who would break that rule? It's just ingrained in us. But if you broke that rule, you'd kind of stand out a little bit, wouldn't you? So you see how it works. But every once in a while, there's life rules that some people at, in the public at large, they just don't know that you're supposed to follow and obey these rules. And this is where the CDC can step in and help us. I don't know if you saw this story a week or so ago, but as of May 2021, the Center for Disease Control is saying, don't kiss or snuggle your backyard chickens. Apparently, there's been an outbreak of salmonella that are linked to people loving on their chickens just a little too much. Now, I saw this. I laughed out loud. I was like, are you kidding me? Who doesn't know that that's not a good idea? Well, I'll tell you who doesn't know. Our lead pastor, Paul Mumal, didn't know, and he took the news really, really hard. So please, please just pray for him. Now, this summer, we're going to take some time to look at some basic life rules that God has revealed for us in Scripture. And in order to do that, we're going to be studying a specific portion of the Old Testament known as wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature of the Old Testament contains books like Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And these books are referred to as wisdom literature because they reveal the collected wisdom of generations of people that have come before us, godly people. And, and they, they invite the readers to learn how to live wisely, specifically when it comes to applying and obeying God's word to our everyday lives. Now, an example of this is found in Proverbs chapter three. 
It says this, Proverbs 3, 1, the writer says this, my child, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart for they will prolong your life for many years and bring you peace and prosperity. And then maybe you've heard this Proverbs before, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now, basically, what the writer of Proverbs 3 is saying is, look, if you wanna learn how to live your best life right now in such a way that it's gonna pay off for you in the future, all you need to do is learn God's rules for life and obey them, apply them to your life and obey them. And so today I wanna take a look at a very important life rule that most of us might not know or realize is a life rule. And here's what's crazy. This is what's blowing my mind. The more I've studied this, I think it's the very first life rule that God gave to humanity. But before I tell you what life rule number one is, I wanna set the scene for you a little bit so you can understand where it came from and why it's so important. So if you go to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter one, verse one, the very first words of scripture explain something very mysterious. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I know there's a lot of speculation about, well, how did he do that? Uh, look, I don't know. All I know is scripture says that that's how he did it. And so that's how he did it. And through the rest of Genesis 1, we learn that God spoke everything into existence. The stars, the moon, the sun, cows and chickens and all these things. But here's what's fascinating. After God created everything, he stopped to create one last thing, his most prized possession. And we find it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says this, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Now this is so important because according to the writer of Genesis, the very last thing that God created was humans, men and women that were created in his image and in his likeness for a very specific purpose. Look back at Genesis 1:26. He said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they can rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air so that they can rule over all creation. In other words, God created humans last so that he could hand rulership over everything to us that he had just brought into existence. And then look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now think about this for just a moment. God blesses humanity to be fruitful and increase. So what he's saying is, I want you to populate everywhere and spread out and rule over the whole thing. I think this is the greatest job description of all time because what God is saying is, look, I want you to make a lot of babies and I want you to rule over everything that I've given you. And the whole goal of humans ever since then has been to bring glory to God by ruling over creation in God's place. That's our job. And that part about bringing glory to God is really important. In fact, it's so important. It's actually gonna lead us to life rule number one. But again, before I tell you what life rule number one is, I want you to pay very, very close attention to what happens next. If you look at Genesis chapter two, verse one, this is what the writer of Genesis says. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed and on all their vast array, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. 
Now, I want you to slow down and I want you to pay really close attention to this right here. Before God officially hands over ownership to mankind, he does something mind-blowing. He doesn't say, hey, get to work. He says this. He sets aside a day for humans to rest with him before he unleashed them to work with him. Now, I'm going to say that again because I think we need to let that settle in. God set aside an entire day for mankind to rest with him before they ever started working with him. And, and I want you to stop and think about that. that that's kind of counterintuitive, right? I mean, it, honestly, if you think about it, it's, it's backwards. Aren't we supposed to work first and then rest later? Assuming, of course, you get all your chores done. I mean, that's the way my parents raised me. That's the way I've made a living for the last 43 years. You work first and you, and you rest later. I mean, that's the foundation of, of our society. But that's not the pattern that we see God lay down for mankind. And so it's got me asking the question, what if we, what if we have it wrong? What if God's given us this, this amazing life rule and we just ignored it? What if we've been violating it and we're not even aware? Well, this idea of setting aside one day each week to rest with God. It's found over 150 times throughout scripture and it's referred to as the Sabbath or Sabbath rest. And it's first found in Genesis chapter two when God models it for mankind. But the idea of Sabbath comes up again in the very next book of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Think about this. God delivers the Israelites out of 400 years of slavery. The Egyptians have treated them horribly. And shortly after they cross the Red Sea and are set free from their slavery, the next thing that happens is this. This is fascinating. They're officially free. And God says, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. They've been slaves for 400 years, but now God says, look, you're free. And because you're free, I want to show you a different, a better way to live. And that involves resting first with me. Just think about how impactful that must have been for them. And then a few chapters later, God goes all in on this Sabbath thing. He makes it one of the 10 commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 20. He says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. And then if you jump down to the end of verse 11, look at this. It says, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Even the writer of Exodus says, and don't forget, God's already shown us how to do this. And so from that point forward, God makes it clear that he wanted his people to practice this Sabbath rhythm of life where they would work for six days and rest on the seventh day. But the idea wasn't just to rest from doing work. It's so much more important than that. The idea on that seventh day was to rest with God, to Sabbath with God. It was a day of worship and enjoyment that could draw people closer to God to, to experience life the way that he wanted and he intended. Now, I learned this recently. The word Sabbath means to stop. And Sabbath isn't something that God strongly suggested or urged his people to do. He commanded that they Sabbath, that they stop. He wanted them to obey this, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. It'd be like God commanding us to eat our favorite dessert twice a day. Like this is what God is telling us to do. We wouldn't resist that. So why would we resist this? Now, several months ago, a good friend of mine named Amber gave me a copy 
of John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I'm so glad that she did. He talks in this book a lot about Sabbath and what it means to Sabbath. And I've learned so much, but not just like on a, on a heady level, I've learned how to apply this to my everyday life. And I would highly recommend that you take some time this summer to read this book. And in the book, Comer describes the idea of Sabbath this way. He says, simply put, Sabbath is a day to stop, to stop working, to stop wanting, to stop worrying. It's a, it's a day to set aside all your distractions. It's a chance to put all your to-do lists away. You don't hurry, you rest. You don't catch up on errands. So Sabbath is a day to stop. But Comer points this out too. Sabbath can also be translated as to delight. And he says this, Sabbath carries with it this dual idea of stopping and also joying in God and in our lives in this world. The Sabbath is an entire day set aside to follow God's example, to stop and to delight in the world and the most importantly, in God himself. Um, one commentator says it like this, if you have a hard time imagining, just ask yourself this question, what would you do for a 24 hour period if the only right criteria was to pursue deep joy? Assuming of course that God's in the middle of all that. You could do hobbies and crafts and games. You could exercise, you could ride in your car, ride on your bike, whatever brought you joy, whatever helped you connect with God. That's what Sabbath is supposed to be like. So are you starting to see why this is such an important life rule? And again, think about this. The practice of Sabbath is literally the first lesson that God taught and modeled for mankind. So I want to take just a moment and hit pause here. And I want you to think about how you can let this idea sink into your own personal life. Because if you're like me and you've heard about Sabbath before, but maybe you're like, yeah, but I don't get it. Like, what is it? And, and why, why is it so important? Well, from the beginning of scripture, we learn that God has woven this idea into the fabric of creation. And again, not so we would just take a day off of work, but so we could, so we could adapt this rhythm into our life of resting and worshiping him first before we do anything else. Now, it sounds great. Like, sign me up. But I also know there's one big problem. There's a major obstacle in the way of me and you Sabbathing well. And I hate to say this, but it's you. It's me, it's us. Whether we want to admit it or not, we're our biggest roadblock when it comes to enjoying rest with God. Because somewhere between Genesis 2 and June of 2021, we, as humans, created in God's image, we've managed to trade away a day of Sabbath and rest with God for a lifestyle of hurry that is so crammed with so many things to do that honestly, we have forgotten what it looks like to slow down long enough to enjoy a lazy afternoon and just appreciate God's presence without feeling guilty about it. Or to Think about this, to worship God by taking a nap and recharging our body so we're more fun to be around. Or here's one, we're so busy. When was the last time you sat down to watch the sunset with your family or your friends on your back porch more than once in a week or in a month? Scientists have developed a term to describe this type of frantic lifestyle that we live in. It's called hurry sickness. And according to psychology today, it's a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. It's an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone else? We live in a day and age right now that mocks 
God's idea of Sabbath rest and design. And you know what? As a result, we cram so much activity into our life. We don't know how to slow down. If something gets canceled, we'll just put something right on top of it, right? We're double booked. And we're addicted to social networks that show us what everyone else is doing. And we feel like we got to keep up. And we're controlled by algorithms that try to dictate our next move. But here's the worst part. In our efforts to maximize our time, in hopes of accomplishing more and doing more, our relationship with God has suffered worse than we could ever imagine. And you know, it's not because God's changed. God never changes. Scripture teaches us that. It's because we've changed. And the change is not healthy for us, our culture, our kids, or for our future. And so instead of embracing God's Sabbath rhythm and slowing down to rest and enjoy Him for long periods of time, well, we just try to fit Him in a little here and a little there. I mean, have you ever done this? You wake up and you're so exhausted. And you go and you stand in the shower and you're trying to wake up and you're like, hey God, it's good to see you this morning. Can you just help me through the day? Amen. And then you're off and going. Or you jump in your car or on the bus or where to, to get to wherever you're going next. You're like, hey God, keep me safe. Could you help me drive a little fast because I'm running late today? Or maybe at the end of the day, you're so tired. You can't keep your eyes open. You've been binging TV and you're like, hey God, I'm sorry I didn't get to hang with you today. I'll catch you tomorrow. You know, I'm guilty of doing all that more than I care to admit but that's not Sabbath. That's not even prayer. I don't know what that is, but that's not what God's called us to. But here's the thing for me. Thankfully, over the last few months, the Lord has been teaching me and the Holy Spirit has been convicting me. That the reason I feel worn out and frustrated more often than I care to admit, and the reason I am forgetful and I feel drained so often, and the reason I feel so far away from God, it's because I'm violating this important life rule. And I've violated it for all 43 years of life. And to be clear, it's not like Sabbath is a new concept. I mean, it, God created it in the very beginning. It's in the fabric of creation. And it's up to us to decide whether or not we're gonna take advantage of it, but more importantly, whether or not we're gonna obey God and trust him at his word. I love how John Mark Comer describes this. He says, when we fight against the work six days, Sabbath one day rhythm, we go against the grain of the universe. And when you go against the grain of the universe, you're guaranteed to get splinters. So we see it in Genesis 2. God makes it clear he's going to pause to show us how to do this. But God didn't rest because he was tired. He's God. He never gets tired. He was resting. Think about this. He was giving us an eternal example that we could follow in our finite lives. And so here's a big question for you to think about. Do you think you're wiser than God? Do you think you know better than him on this? Do you think you're more important than God? I mean, sure, you've got an important job and you need to make money and you need to raise your family and you need to finish school. All those things are important, but no offense, did you speak the universe into existence? Are you holding all creation together right now? If God, in all of his eternal glory and splendor, rested for a day to give us an example and he's commanded us to follow that example on a weekly basis, aren't, aren't we just hard pressed to fight against it? And so here's a question like, where do you begin? Where do you start? How do you learn how to Sabbath? Well, I don't know. We can set aside some time to be with them and to interact with them. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what this looks like for myself, but I have a few suggestions. So first, I would highly recommend that you get this book, okay? The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. I don't get any kickbacks from you buying the book. I love this book for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's highly practical. 
I love how practical it is. And I like it so much, I challenged my 14-year-old son to read it. I didn't think he would. He loved it. Now my wife is reading it, and the three of us are talking about it, and we're trying to practice it in our home. But I love how practical he makes it. He's got entire chapters in this book devoted to silence and solitude. And he says, if you want to know how to connect with God, just make time in your day throughout your week where you are sitting in a quiet room or a quiet space with God. And you're thinking, ugh, why? Hey, don't knock it till you try it. It allows your mind to settle and you can hear God's voice and appreciate his presence in new ways. I'm, I'm actually enjoying learning to practice this. He has a whole chapter on, on Sabbath. He has a chapter on simplicity, learning to live simply and, and learning to slow down. And the whole point of these principles and practices is to help us create quiet spaces in life to hear God's voice on a regular basis. So I like the book because it's practical, but I also like it because it's biblical. One of the things I love about this book is he says, look, Jesus is our model for how to do this. Jesus practiced Sabbath with his, with his heavenly father. And he says, this is, this is what this should look like for us. He talks about how Jesus got away from the crowds on a regular basis. He got out of the hurry of life and Sabbath with his heavenly father. And he gives examples of how that Sabbath time with his father fueled Jesus's life and ministry. And as a follower of Jesus, I don't know, this is sad to admit, I need all the reminders and all the examples I can get when it comes to following Jesus specifically. But here's the, here's the biggest impact that this book has left on my life recently. There's an entire chapter devoted to a very familiar teaching of Jesus. I've heard it a million times, and chances are when I read it in just a second, you're gonna be like, yeah, I've heard this before. It comes from Matthew 11, 28 through 30. These are some famous words from Jesus. He says this, come to me, all of you, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you're like me, you've probably heard that about 2.7 million times, right? But just in case you're new, let me explain some things, or maybe let me refresh this passage for those of us that have heard it before. This, this phrase yoke that Jesus uses, it's a common expression that was used to describe a rabbi's way of teaching God's law to, to the people. And here we find Jesus, who was a rabbi or a teacher, inviting anyone that was tired, anyone that's worn out or burdened with the stresses and hurry of life. Jesus says, hey, I wanna show you a better way of knowing God, a better way of following him. And up to that point in time, this is really important. Most, if not all other rabbis in Jesus's day taught God's law in a way that felt like a very heavy burden. It was like an impossible to-do list that made people feel like they had to work really, really, really hard in order to make God happy, in order to earn his love. And well, here's the problem with that kind of teaching. If you believe that you gotta work really, really, really hard to make God happy and to earn his love, well, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really feel like love for God or love from God. It just feels like slavery. And we learned back in Exodus, when God set the people free, he said, look, you've, you've been working hard. You've been mistreated. I want you to take a break to enjoy me with one another so I can show you a better way to live. So in this teaching, Jesus is inviting people to a whole new way to live the way that God intends. And I love this. He says, it'll help you find rest for your souls. I don't know about you. That just sounds good to me. But this teaching is also an illustration. 
Because a yoke is also a farming tool that's used to link two large animals like cows or oxen together so they can pull a cart or a plow. And the idea is there's more energy, there's more power with the two of them. They don't have to work so hard. They can work together. It makes the work easier. Now, like many of you, I'd heard that all before and I understood the concept in my head. But for some reason recently, the Holy Spirit has really just brought this to light to me in a brand new way to grab my attention. He's helped me understand the importance of following Jesus and practicing Sabbath. And and it completely blew my mind. Look back at that passage. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what blew my mind. Jesus is inviting me, he's inviting you not only to learn from his teachings on how to know God and how to follow his example of resting with God, but he's actually offering us to be yoked next to him so that he can carry the load of life with us and for us. I never thought of that before. I always thought like I'm in a yoke all by myself, but I'm walking next to Jesus. So here's the lesson the Holy Spirit's been teaching me. When I willingly, when I'm willing to fully submit to Jesus and to be yoked together with him, he agrees to carry all my burdens for me. Because we're yoked together, Jesus agrees to carry all those burdens in my life. And and you know what, here's the beauty of it all. Compared to Jesus, I'm just, I'm really weak. I I don't have any strength to offer him, which means as long as I'm walking alongside of him, he's carrying it all for me. I can stop at any time, I can check out, I can fight against, but if I'm walking alongside of him, he just makes things easier. Now, that doesn't mean that life instantly gets easier or better. That doesn't mean that you'll never have trouble. But what it does mean is that I can rest in the fact that when Jesus died in my place, he set me free from the slavery of sin and death. And it also means he's inviting me to follow his example of how to live the way God intends, by loving people the way that he did, by serving people the way that he did. But get this, Jesus is also inviting me to rest with God the way that he did. And I need that. And here's the good news. That offer is not just for me. It's for all of us. It's for anyone and everyone that's willing to submit their lives to Jesus. Think about this. When we receive Jesus's invitation to take on his yoke, we're agreeing to let go of all the burdens and all the rushing and all the working and every attempt in our life to accomplish something great to make make us feel good. But you know what? We don't have to do that. Jesus has already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished to please God. So when we, by faith, submit to Jesus's offer to take on his yoke and to follow his way of living, all of Jesus's perfect righteousness are credited to to our account. There's nothing more to do, which means we're free to rest. That's good news. We can rest in him. We can rest in who he says we are. We can rest with him. He can show us a new way to live that isn't hurried or rushed. So we have to feel like we got to keep up with everybody else. Because when we learn to rest with Jesus, we learn to enjoy a Sabbath rhythm of life that we want to implement into our lives. And so as we wrap up, I I want you to think about this. Summer in our minds, I think, is a time where we think, oh, it's going to be rest and relaxing. But I don't know about you. We go so fast. By the time the kids go back to school, I'm just worn out. But what if this was a summer of Sabbath for us? What if we just agreed as a people to say, I'm gonna take God up on his word here. It doesn't counter, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. God blessed the Sabbath because it multiplies itself in our life 
throughout the course of our week. If we give up a day to him to enjoy him communally with our family, with our friends, to enjoy life and worship him, God says, I'll do more in your week than you could ever imagine. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, I think it's time to clear our calendars. I think it's time to let go of some sports schedules and all the things we like to do. And we need to make some serious time to be with him. But for those of you that are tuning in today and you're curious about Jesus, you're on the fence with Jesus and you want this rest, it is free to you. All you have to do is surrender to him. And you can do that today to say, Jesus, I wanna take your yoke upon me. I want to give the burdens of my life to you. If you're interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus, I wanna invite you right now to drop a comment in the comment section. We'll follow up with you. We would love to help you take that next step in your journey with him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I'm thankful for what you're teaching me about Sabbath. I'm thankful that from the very beginning, it's, it's undeniable. You rested to show us a pattern. When you set the Israelites free, you said, I want you to take a day tomorrow to rest with me. I'm so thankful that we see Jesus practice this throughout his life. And I'm thankful that because of what you've done for us, Jesus, we can rest in you. There's nothing that we need to do other than surrender to you in faith. And so I pray for those of us that are following you, Jesus, would you convict us to the core to slow down, to let go of the things we're rushing after so that we can practice silence and solitude with you early in the morning so we can Sabbath with you around a meal and with friends and we can worship you together corporately. But would you help us not to fit you in? Would, would you help us to give you an entire day and to watch you multiply it throughout the course of our life? Father, I pray for anyone that's watching or listening today that does not know your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would call them to you, that this invitation to rest with you, it, it would woo them into your presence and they would surrender to you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for accomplishing for us what only you can. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.